Welcome, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio. In the beginning of the week, you're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson, how was your weekend? <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, I spent time with my family. Yes. Uh, as it was Father's Day yesterday, which was really great. Um, I also spent a lot of time on Zoom. Actually, I had my last <laughs> Zoom, me- my last Zoom meeting finished at 10 p.m. last night. So just, wow. just Zoom Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, you know, uh, Sunday, you know, it was Father's Day during the day. So no Zoom then we get a yes. bit of a break and then Zoom last night because it's just, it's just so much going on. In, that is in the amazing. And, um, yeah. We all need to go and buy shares in Zoom, I think. Well, I think we're too late for that. Very, that was actually really funny when Zoom, like, blew up and became a thing. Like, in its initial stages, people were buying shares in the wrong company. Oh, okay. Because they were like, oh, because, like, if you bought shares in Zoom before last year. But buying shares in the right, in the wrong company might not necessarily be a bad idea because then the wrong company will go up in value and that's right. in good shape. And it did initially. And then, <laughs> and then people figured out, like, oh, this isn't the same Zoom. But yeah, Zoom, Zoom, like, last year was kind of like Bitcoin. You, you should have got in early. Yes. But still, the, the point is, is that there's lots going on. There uh, is. In the, in cyberspace, uh, that we, you have to talk about all the time. Apparently. Absolutely. What are you grateful for? Uh, I'm grateful for my dad, obviously. Mm. Um, I have an amazing father, deeply spiritual man. Uh, you know, the reason that I'm here doing what I'm doing today, the reason I'm the kind of person that I am is, you know, the, the good parts of me anyway, is a result <laughs> of the, you know, the great mentoring and modeling that I had from just having an amazing dad. That's it. And amazing grandfathers as well on, you know, on both sides who were spiritual mentors for me. As well. Let's talk about the weather. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. What have we got for uh, positively different news this morning, Lawson? Okay, positively different news. I found out about this thing this morning called the Barnabas Fund, which has currently helped 400 Afghan Christians to escape, um, but is working to rescue more. Praise God. And we need to have that. There's definitely a lot of people who are really under threat in Afghanistan right now. 100%. And the really cool thing about this, I was reading this article, um, and it doesn't necessarily get into the, the plight and how they're extracting the Afghan Christians at the moment, obviously, because that's very sensitive information and they don't want to give that away. But what it did get into is how this actually this Barnabas Fund and this organization came about, which is such an interesting story. It essentially revolves around this guy. Um, his name is Patrick, um, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Patrick Suktio, um, who he's the international director of the Barnabas Fund. Um, but he was part of ISAF, so I-S-A-F, which was a military operation in Afghanistan during between 2011 and 2014 to, esta- to essentially help establish the president over there and, you know, help them... Stabilise the government. Stabilise the government. Yeah, yeah that's that what they well, were doing. It? So he was, he was a part of that. He's like an Afghan guy, a part of ISAF, you know, g- getting it done or at least trying to. Um, and ultimately, they, what they were trying to do is um, help the government, you know, appeal to the people by... They, they had like a religious commitment so that they could show that, oh, no, we're, we're as devoted to Islam as the Taliban, but we're better. 
you know, we're an actual government. Um, and part of that, you know, they wrote, uh, they, they got a bunch of Islamic judges to write um, what's called, uh, so the Islamic judges, they're called Qadis, and they wrote some fatwas, which is, uh, or fatwas, which is Islamic decisions or rulings, which essentially, you know, went out to the country and circulated and said, okay, you know, this is the government's opinion on religion. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like, he's a part of ISAF, as a Christian, trying to stabilize the government over there. And one of the fatwa, fatwas that were released essentially expressed that, hey, no, we have a commitment to Sharia law, even more so than the Taliban, but we're a government and we're better. But the, the next step after that was that we are going to uphold um, uh, blasphemy laws. Ooh, see, this is what happens when you have a union of church and state and you have a country that believes in separation of church and state who goes over there and creates a government which is a union of church and state. How is this ever going to be successful? Exactly. So this guy saw this in 2012, 2013, when he's working for ISAF trying to help these people. And then he's like, dude, we are just setting up a framework to persecute Christians. Yeah. Like that's, we're putting them in danger. Mm-hmm. And and so from there, like that was kind of the inspiration to start the bottom. Well, of the not spine. just Christians, but Hindus, for yeah. Uh, Buddhists, yeah, literally anyone. Um, and yeah, just reading through his story, going on from there, starting the Barnabas Fund, it, literally in response to that, that is really and, and and its work is really coming to fruition now. Obviously, they've been helping people in all different countries and um, getting things done, but. Yeah, right now they're really seeing the fruit of what was started because it was like it, back then they identified, dude, this is going to be terrible for Christians. And now they're seeing that they're seeing it happen. So they're doing an amazing job um, at the moment. Yeah, trying to help Christians escape. They estimate that there's still around between 5,000 and 8,000 still over there, which they are doing what they can to get out of there. But one thing that I read part of the statement, which was, you know, that governments need to be to be lobbied to um, to essentially create a separation of church and state legislation mm-hmm. that stops persecution. And I feel like this is separation of church and state and religious liberty together. That's right. Yeah. I feel like I, I really like that take on it because consistently we see you know, the step from churches that, that a lot of churches and religions are taking is to try and get into the government to make it better for their religion. But that's not what we should be calling to or we should be doing. You know, when I look at Jesus, he's not a political figure, even though he had um, run-ins with politicians, even though he dealt with politicians. It, what it shows me and what Jesus did and what we should be going for is, yeah, to create peace rather than to create can take control. Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world." It wasn't his emphasis. It wasn't his. Amen. You know, you've got some. You've got some major politicians in the Bible. I get that, but it's not the main emphasis of why we are here as Christians. That's not mm. our main project. You know. Mm. So I feel like, yeah, just the the amazing work that's going over there on uh, over there at the moment with the Barnabas Fund. You can actually go and donate to those guys, BarnabasFund.org, because from what I'm seeing, like they are just doing such a vital and important job that. Many people have identified governments aren't really stepping up and helping these people. Not at all. They're just Not they're, at all. like they've just get they've just in got fact, out of there. In fact, a lot of government, well, the, the U.S. government in particular, has opposed a lot of these independent organisations and said, "Stay out of it. You're messing things up. You're in our way." Mm. And as a result, you know they've they've been like, "Well, we want to get translators out, and we want to get citizens out, mm. um, and we want to get Afghani's out who have aided the American forces." 
and uh, that leaves no room for getting Christians out. Yeah. And they're like, no, leave the Christians there. Don't worry about the, you know. Yeah, that's their problem. Yeah. When it's not. No, not at all. Like we no, should be supporting humanitarian, these people. Humanitarian effort should be available for everybody who is under threat. That's right. So, again, BarnabasFund.org, guys, get in, um, and uh, you can support those guys with the amazing work that they're doing over there. All right, I have some short time left. Well, I read the most epic story last night um, about a four-year-old girl who has won one of the most prestigious music competitions as it's like the Young Protégés competition, and her prize is that, so basically, if you win this competition, this is like a four-year-old Chinese um, American who is just like killing it. Um, she's won this competition. The prize is that she gets to go to the Carnegie Hall in, the, in New York City to go and play, but she's not allowed to go because she's unvaccinated. Ah, here it goes again. Here it goes again. Okay, okay. So where's this story going? Oh, well, essentially, like, I, I wanted to point out, like, I love music. I'm a musician myself. Yep. And, you know, I've been, I've watched a couple of her performances and this is just like God's blessing of talent. Like you think about a four-year-old and the capacity that they have to learn and understand music. Like I know for myself when I was four, like yep. it's, it's, it's very minuscule. Like, yeah, you, you have lots of neuroplasticity, but seeing this girl play like, um, Beethoven's Moonlight, uh, no, she played, um, Beethoven Sonatina in F major, and which is and she's blocked because she doesn't have a mandatory vaccine. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. Four. <laughs> yeah, she's four. So I was like, what yeah. kind of a world do we live in? <laughs> Seriously. But hey, look, hey, this look. is what happens when you have mandatory vaccinations for all you know, rules for all these different kind of things. It just it just becomes ridiculous. You know what's interesting though? Her, her parents are vaccinated. Right. Well, yeah. they vac- no, nobody's vaccinating four-year-olds. <laughs> That's the point, is that you, cause you can't get vaccinated as a four-year-old. So she, <sighs> so she can't come. So they're aiming at heading down there in 2022, hopefully, um, from, they live in Connecticut, heading down to, um, heading down to New York. But- See, this is where you need to have exemptions. Yeah, that's right. Mm. You know, the people are just rushing to mandatory vaccination without creating exemptions, and there needs to be exemptions for freedom of conscience. It's not even freedom of conscience. You're just not allowed no, to get not in, this, in this case, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with conscience. <laughs> Seriously, there are ridiculous things that happen in our world right now, but go this girl. Um, it's fantastic to see, see uh, talent like that. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay. Good stuff. All right. Serious news, Lyle. It's going down. Aztec. Aztec it's Empire. Ready. Let's talk about the Aztec <laughs> Empire. They're in the news this morning, particularly the Why? Aztec gods. Okay. So, the you know, in the ancient civilizations and ancient empires that existed uh, outside of the followers of God, child sacrifice and human sacrifice was very, very common. Yeah. But no one ever did it on the scale of the Aztecs. Yeah, well. Uh, historians estimate that Aztecs sacrificed about one in five people that they had influence over. Uh, if you were an Aztec warrior, and every male was required to be an Aztec warrior, uh, but if you were an Aztec warrior, you could not qualify as an Aztec warrior until you had provided somebody for sacrifice. Yikes. Uh, Aztec... Um, the, the practice of, 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 of Aztec uh, sacrifice was that they would take you to the top of one of their pyramids. They would cut your heart out while you were still alive 
and toss you down the side of, you know, toss all the bodies down the side of the pyramids. And so these pyramids would just become saturated with blood. They'd be, you know, pyramids that were just painted red with blood. Yeah. This is, this is Aztec, you know, cult. It was just horrific. They estimate that in some of the Aztec festivals that would last for around about four days, they were sacrificing up to 20,000 people every day. Surely that thins out the population. <laughs> and because of that, they had to, you know, be continually raiding the neighbouring empires, neighbouring nations and so forth to be able to provide sacrifices. Um, they estimate that they sacrificed, the Aztecs would sacrifice a quarter of a million people per year to their gods. So the Aztec gods were, you know, probably the most horrific gods that have ever existed on our planet. I don't know whether anybody could, maybe amongst our Brains Trust listeners, you can come up with gods that were more horrific than the Aztec gods, but I don't think there were any more horrific that I've ever studied from the standpoint of history than the Aztec gods. Mm. Okay, so the state, the California State Department of Education has just released their well, actually not, hasn't just released, but recently released their ethnic studies curriculum. And guess what it requires students to do? What? Stand up and chant prayers to Aztec gods. Yikes. Now, you would wonder why. Okay, so in, uh, in, in, in ethnic studies, certainly you need to study, obviously, different cultures. That's what it's all about, mm. different religions and so forth, and the impact that those religions had on our world. That does not mean that you pray to those gods in class as a student. Yeah, dude. You know, you think about all of the different students with all of the different religious backgrounds, you're not going to have any students there who come from a background of worshipping Aztec gods, I don't think. What, what, uh, the worship of Aztec gods is illegal because human sacrifice is illegal. I mean, certainly you make up a new way of worshipping them for sure, but... Yeah, that I, I hope they don't sacrifice kids. But at the okay, at the same time, isn't like praying to Christ like the God of Christianity becoming increasingly disallowed in schools? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so, so you know, at, at best, this is a little bit um, irresponsible. But you've got to you know recognize the fact that this this glorifies anthropomorphic male deities. Who, re, whose religious rituals involved the most gruesome uh, sacrifices uh, that you can possibly imagine. Mm. And the question is, why? This is a non-existent religion. It's a religion that ceases to exist. And, you know, looking at you know, the various articles that have come out about this particular story and the reason why, why has this been included into the curriculum, the only thing that I've been able to actually come up with is that there is such a thing as pure evil mm. and it exists in our world. Mm. And pure evil, you know, people people don't believe in Satan anymore. Could you get a clearer evidence of the existence of Satan than glorifying something like this in the classroom and mm. making a part of a state education curriculum? Mm. You know, that's pretty bizarre. Uh they also include prayers to, uh, or the, the, the Asha prayer, which is an ancient pagan religion, which is the predecessor to modern Haitian voodoo. Mm. Okay. 
what's interesting is, okay, let's let, let's say that we give them better than a doubt and they're just being broad and they're like, yeah, let's talk about all the different religions in the world and you can have a sample of each one of them. But no, it does include Christianity as a part of the curriculum. But when it includes Christianity as a part of the curriculum, it positions Christians as the source of all evil, guilty of theocide against indigenous tribes. In other words, Christians came in and Christians converted these tribes and they brought an end to human sacrifice. They brought an end to child sacrifice. They brought an end to, uh, uh, you know, to, to all of these horrific things that were going on. Christians came in and they bought medicine. They, you know, did away with the 90% child mortality rate that existed back then, the 50% of women who died in childbirth, etc. They introduced health and they introduced hygiene and they introduced a religion of peace. And uh, Christians who did that are in this curriculum positioned as being committing theocide and being the source of all evil because they destroyed these ancient cultures. Wow. That's so dumb. <laughs> it's like, you know, what kind of a curriculum is this? And and what, what are that what are people actually trying to accomplish? That's right. With this kind of curriculum? Are they are they seriously trying to take us back to child sacrifice, to human sacrifice? Mm. Uh, are they seriously trying to take us back to these kinds of absolute horrific, terrifying mm. uh, practices of the past where people lived their entire year, lives in abject fear of the gods. Are they really trying to say that a religion of peace needs to be obliterated? Now, hey, far be it from me to over-defend Christianity on this particular point because Christianity has done a terrible job in many, many situations. And if you look you know, in India, for instance, where Christianity was well where, where Catholicism was brought to India and they converted lots of Hindus. How did they do that? By setting up an Inquisition. Mm. I'm not, not going to go too far here. But generally speaking, if you were going to choose, you know, child sacrifice, cannibalism, uh, human sacrifice, all these kinds of uh, things, that's at the peak of extremity when it comes to religion. And pretty much anything is better than that, surely. Yeah. Um. Okay, so Dr. Richard Land, the executive editor for the Christian Post, previously noted in his weekly column, this is all so comprehensively evil and destructive, it is hard to know where to begin criticism of this dangerous, divisive, retrograde cultural vandalism. Wow. The idea that a tax-supported public school system would or could be used to unleash this vicious cultural and spiritual poison into our young people's consciousness is both extremely offensive and quite possibly illegal. Dude, this it's almost surreal. Like so, it's a, like to think it's a, it's almost like like um you know sci-fi horror esque yeah. in the sense of like you know it, you like when you w- watch maybe a street story or a TV show is like oh in 5 years morals are going to get thrown out the window and they're going to be teaching that child sacrifice is good in school. like it's it's surreal to think that people are supporting this it is it is absolutely indeed uh, but that is a sign of the times, and that is what the Bible says, that our world will be like just before Jesus comes back. And so when we see these things happening, we can hold up our heads and have confidence that soon Jesus will return Amen. and bring an end to the pure evil that exists here on this planet. 
You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so last Friday we had a fascinating interview with Dr. John Ashton that was actually supposed to happen today, mm-hmm. but he very kindly stood in for Dr. Paul Wood, uh, who apparently, uh, Paul, you were suffering with a bit of laryngitis and a bit of a bit of a cold and flu happening there. How are you feeling this morning, Dr. Paul Wood? Yes, my voice is um, almost back to normal again, and I'm, I'm glad to say it wasn't COVID. I had a, I had a negative chest while, so nice. But uh, a couple of days of rest, and I'm um, feeling a lot better. Thank yeah, you. fantastic stuff. Do you have much COVID uh, floating around in the area where you are living at the moment? Yeah, so I live near Kempsey, and um, we had two cases about a fortnight ago, um, a little over a fortnight ago, but um, so far no more. So, yeah, we, we feel very blessed. Yeah, well, continue to pray that uh, you don't have it and you guys can stay out of lockdown up there. Now, Dr. Paul Wood, we're going to talk about uh, this Japanese word this morning. And I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. Ikigai, it, would that be a good pronunciation of it? It's actually an Okinawan word. Yeah, look, I'm not Okinawan myself, but that's my understanding is it's roughly translated. It, it, it is pronounced Ikigai. Um, but yeah, roughly translated, a reason to get up in the morning. So in other words, you know, what, what drives us, what's our motivation, what's our purpose? Right. Um, but, and so, so I guess the question about this, you know, is, uh, you know, reason to get up in the morning. We have, you know, most people, I guess, have a reason to get up in the morning. Kids have a reason to get up in the morning because their parents wake them up and drag them out of bed to send them off to school. You know, you and I have a reason to get up in the morning because we're heading off to work. But you have some people who might be, say, for instance, unemployed for whatever reason or, you know, maybe on uh, disability pension or uh, elderly people who have retired uh, is is this something that is important for them as well? And if so, how important? Absolutely. I mean, I guess one reason it's interesting the Okinawans have this word is that um, Okinawa is a blue zone. So it's it's one of these populations in the world where people tend to live a long time. So they have a very large percentage of the population who live to the age of 100 or, or more. So it seems that this Ikigai concept um, actually ties into your health status. Um, and ties into how long you can live. But I'd argue not just your quantity of life, but also your quality of life as well. Right. Okay, so why is it that Ikigai has such a powerful influence on our quantity and quality of life? Surely it's good to be able to, you know, take a bit of a rest, have a bit of a sleep in from time to time. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess it gets down to some more of those sort of profound issues. Um, and we all, we all experience um, adverse, um, I guess, situations that occur in our life from time to time. Perhaps one um, man that experiences more than others would be Dr. Viktor Frankl. He was a Austrian psychiatrist who, during World War II, um, actually experienced Nazi concentration camps. And during his experience, he actually had a, a chance to observe, but also to work with some people um, who are experiencing, I guess, profound trials in their life. But uh, one thing he he identified that seemed to play a role between those who survived the concentration camp and those who didn't. And I guess this is those individuals who um, didn't have their lives independently by the, by the Nazis. But it was this, this concept of, of, of meaning. And it seemed that those who, who lacked meaning um, or lacked a sense of, of purpose in their life at, at, at that particular time in their life um, were the ones who committed to either commit suicide, run into the barbed wire, uh, but those who seem to have a reason to survive beyond the war, um, 
are the ones who seem to have a higher chance of surviving. So, yeah, this, this whole concept of meaning seems to play a role, uh, not just in the everyday one of our life, but um, also we experience, I guess, challenges like we're experiencing right now with, uh, with COVID. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, people that would run into the wire and commit suicide and so forth, but what about their vulnerability to disease and that kind of thing? Were people who were lacking meaning, were they more vulnerable to, you know, because, I mean, the concentration camps, and he was, you know, Dr. Vic, Victor Frankel was a um, incarcerated in one of these concentration camps, so he's experiencing it for himself firsthand. Uh, did it increase their uh, their vulnerability to the diseases that would run rampant through these camps? Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that one, Lyle. But um, it certainly did seem to impact their mental health. So there was a couple of, um, he, he, he records two occasions we had, had two inmates who he was uh, working with who were both suicidal. And um, those two individuals, he, he helped them to sort of identify what are some reasons beyond what you're experiencing right now that you might have to live for. And that seemed to help turn their lives around. That, didn't, that wasn't necessarily the case in every situation, but um, yeah, it seemed to certainly impact their mental health in a big way. Mm, mm. So does it make a difference then when you when there's a, uh, I guess in this sense, just listening to what you're saying there, when there is a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, something to look forward to, there is hope uh, to, to to hang out for? Absolutely. I mean, this is something I, I guess I've observed anecdotally as a GP, um, certainly with um, patients when they're going through, they're getting a cancer diagnosis, for example, um, the ones who seem to do better are the ones who seem to have a, perhaps a more positive mental um, outlook, outlook or something to live for. Um, that's, that's not a hard and fast rule, but um, it certainly does seem that, you know, sometimes you see patients, for example, who get a bad <clears throat> diagnosis who, who seemingly would um, not have long for this world, but who seem to defy the odds and live a lot longer than you'd otherwise anticipate. And you see, on the other hand, people too, for example, who you know, seemingly should be lasting a lot longer than they do. Um, but it's, it's like the towel gets, they throw the towel in, so to speak. Um, that's because it's not something to live for. Um, I, I think it's sort of hard to find good scientific research to back that up, but that's, that's something I've observed anecdotally in my experience as a GP. Well, I've seen that firsthand anecdotally because, you know, my father-in-law is a twin and both he and his twin about 17 years ago were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis and given about 18 months to live. And his uh, his twin brother, you know, accepted the diagnosis like, okay, that's it, I've got 18 months to live. And uh, um, 18 months later, thereabouts, passed away, whereas my father-in-law walked out of the, the, the you know, a similar kind of hospital situation. Is like, well, what do those doctors know? They don't know, you know, anything. I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me and is still going yeah. strong today. Um, wow, you know, so there's there's this fairly powerful anecdotal uh, um, illustration of that right there. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's one one bit of interesting research I've, I came across, and again, I've been suspicious of this too, just having observed it as a GP. You know, sometimes I'd see have patients who who retired early, for example, who you know, not you know, six months after they retired, they got the cancer diagnosis for. Um, and then you see other individuals who sort of worked, you know, they really enjoyed their work. They decided to keep on working for longer and, and seem to experience more positive health. But yeah, a couple of years ago, I came across some research that kind of backed that up. Um, one was an interesting study in the US where they tracked 3,000 retirees for over 20 years. And what they found was that among those retirees who were healthy, I guess you can retire either healthy or unhealthy, but um, those retirees who retired when they were healthy, 
um, that guns that if they um, retired a year later, um, that they actually had 11% lower risk of, of death. Um, those people who retired unhealthy um, still had a 9% lower risk of death when retiring later as well. Now, that's interesting because, I mean, we're living in a country right now where we are increasing our retirement age and having a lot of people complain about it, but it might actually then be better for our health. Is that what the research is indicating? Yeah, it does seem to suggest that. And I guess when you sort of think about the role of work, um, you know, a lot of this, particularly males, I think this is probably more an issue for males than females, but, you know, we, we, we derive our identity, our sense of work from our, our occupation. Um, it's also a place where we tend to socialise and we... Um, I guess our mind is stimulated by the work that we do. So when you take all those things away prematurely um, from an individual, you may struggle with identity. So I, I guess um, with females, perhaps, you know, they've, they've always got the kids to worry about, the grandkids to care for. Perhaps as males, they don't seem to play as great a role in those, in some of those nurturing aspects. Um, when we do retire, we've got to sort of think very seriously about what are we going to replace identity in terms of work with um, and it can be a challenge for some some of us males. Yes, indeed. You've also got you also mentioned here a uh, a Greek study that found similar results. What was that one all about? Yeah, so this actually tracked seventeen thousand individuals, and what they found was that um, there was a five year increase. So with a five year increase in age of retirement, I guess to be sixty five. This is retiring at seventy. Uh, this was associated with a ten percent decrease in risk of death. So you know. Yeah, you're not wrong. That's uh, definitely a significant finding right there. And, you know, once again, I think of people I know anecdotally who have, you know, continued a very long time into their retirement years but still working definitely seem to do well. Uh, There's no question about that. And those that do retire and and, and then, you know, maintain a very active lifestyle – it, it it never ceases to amaze me how well they do. You know, once again, a, a good friend of mine who retired for sure but continued to grow nearly all of his own food um, on yeah. his property um, in northern Wisconsin where Shell comes from. Yeah, 94, 95 now, I think. Uh, caught COVID last year, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Doctor said he's going to die today, threw it off, you know, still going after all these years. But somebody who stayed active. Wow. And, and, and I guess that underscores the point of, you know, when we do retire, having a bit of a retirement plan. And there's various ways to do that. I mean, you can, um, for some people, they just cut back a few days. Maybe they're working five days a week, they cut back to three days a week, and they slowly ease out of uh, the workforce into retirement. And it gives them a chance to adapt to what life looks like um, after retirement. Many people might look at, um, for example, contracting their skills um, after they retire, just doing sort of one-off stints of, work here and there. I know of a, um, uh, a man who works for an AIDS organisation and his area is probably just his international aid and he basically um, worked all his life in that area but now that he's retired and he's, he's getting um, close to his 80s now, he still does, contract, does contractual work, might just do it for a, a month at a time but still keeps his finger in the, on, on the pulse of international aid um, and yet um, still has all that time to enjoy his retirement as well. What about people that don't have the opportunity to continue at some level in employed work? What what kind of things should they be planning for, you know, when it comes to retirement? Is it just time to, uh, you know, get up in the morning and go fishing or, 
sleep in and, and relax with a good book? What what kind of things should re- people that are retiring plan for? Yeah, so I think just getting back to that concept of Ikigai, and it, and it does seem that um, Ikigai really um, is at its best when you when we when we basically find the intersection of our passion, our talents, but also our potential to benefit others. And um, you know, many of us just dream of you know not going to work, but just sitting down reading reading the morning paper. But after a while, that kind of wears a bit thin. So we're going to think about what are some of the activities for retirement that we might get involved in that we're passionate about. Perhaps that we have a talent in that particular area, but also I think particularly importantly can have the potential to benefit others. So, you know, during COVID, I guess we've had a bit of a chance to sort of think about um, this in a bit more detail because our, our, for many of us, we're working from home, so our, our, our work looks a bit different, so maybe not getting the same um, social interaction, the same intellectual stimulation we used to get when we were in the actual workplace itself. Um, I don't know, for me, Lyle, I've, I've tried a few things. Um, I've actually taken up a new hobby. Oh, that's and, exciting. Um, yeah, so I've actually always been just been doing a bit of sourdough, um, and it's quite a quite a challenge. to tell you what, my first sourdough attempt was a, a sourdough pancake, I have to say. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, learning all the ins and outs of how to make sourdough, sourdough bread. Um, and the, the great thing about sourdough bread is you, you don't just eat it alone. You've got to share it with somebody else. So um, those around you are enjoying the, uh, the fruits of my my labours when it comes to, um, to to baking bread. Yeah, I, so I see. Um, you can share. Lawson Lawson pricking up his ears here as soon as you said that he's um, he's pretty keen on the kitchen and was involved in a cookbook recently. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, Lawson, have you tried sourdough bread yet? Oh, like I've eaten sourdough bread. I haven't tried to make it. There you go. It's just scary. This is the Dr. Paul Wood is laying the challenge down for you this morning. Uh, apparently, yeah, there's a bit, of, a bit of science behind this one. So, yeah. um, but there, I think that's a great illustration right there of uh, you know there's there's all kinds of opportunities. Think of something that you haven't tried before or that you've always wondered about and thought you might try, yeah. and give it an opportunity during lockdown or during retirement years, whatever it might be, to actually get out there and have a crack at it. Yeah, absolutely. My my wife told me to tell you all to. To try gardening, but she's a she's a, a real green thumb. Loves skiing in the garden, but um, you know she she finds that gardening is, is is therapy as far as she's concerned. But she also gets to share the fresh produce, share seeds or cuttings with friends with with neighbours, um, and that's a great way to to be a blessing to someone else around her as well. I couldn't agree more. There is nothing better than food that you've grown yourself, Dr. Paul Wood. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking about. The importance of having a reason to get up in the morning. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.